We are in a teaching series that we've called Practice Hospitality, where for, for four weeks, the goal of this series is to change the way we live. And so if at the end of these four weeks, nothing has changed about any of the way that we behave, we have failed uh, in our task that we've set ourselves. And to help us with this, I have um, interviewed a friend who I think is exceptional at opening her home and ex extending hospitality to people. And we are showing different chunks of that discussion throughout the month as we're talking about this. So in a moment, we're going to hand over to Wendy and my and the conversation on the video. We're going to watch that for a few minutes, and then I'm going to come and bring God's Word to us this morning. While she's speaking, I challenge you to get your booklets out, and you can take some notes of what she's saying. These are meant to be uh, books that you interact with and use, take notes, think about things that you're going to pray for, wait, get creative with ideas of how you can express and extend hospitality, and go on some adventures with God. It was a year and a half ago that a good friend of ours in the church, Claire Harmer, here she is, who runs our youth work. She sat in uh, a, a Sunday service. We were talking about going on adventures with God. And at that point, she wasn't involved with youth work, but thought to herself, I'm going to go on an adventure with God and say yes and get involved with helping to lead and love the youth work. And since then, she's done a fantastic job uh, caring for, nurturing, praying for, encouraging our young people. And we saw three of them baptized a couple of weeks ago. So as we sit there, we're watching this, we're going to listen to this. I want you to be thinking, God, what adventures in hospitality are you wanting me to go on? So let's roll this video, please. Okay, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, please come and speak to us. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that had fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now when one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet. And invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for now everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. Can I, have, I, I, I go to examine them? Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and byways and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet." This is God's word. Slow-cooked lamb with onion and thyme. Homemade hamburgers with chunky chips. Marinated chicken, roast belly of pork. 
caramelized chutneys, baked potatoes, salad, beans and cheese, rump steak, Thai green curry, Dauphinois potatoes, vintage wine and Glenavon whiskey that's 150 years old, Tex-Mex pizzas, taco stuffed avocados, mozzarella stuffed meatballs, enchiladas and chimichangas, crab cakes, prime ribs, creamy tomato and spinach pasta, stuffed peppers, broiled fish, paella and prawns. Honey, pepper, figs, ginger, rosemary, thyme, basil, saffron, cocoa and vanilla. The world is much more delicious than it needs to be and many of us are now very hungry. Uh, have you ever wondered why or thought about why it is that God made food the way that he has done? What's the purpose of it? Why does it matter? Well, The, t- the title of this morning's message is simply, If Tables Could Talk. If your table could talk, what would it say and why does it matter? I, I could have lived, I mean, God could have made it so that we lived off savory biscuits and um, little, I don't know, morsels of crackers or something. But the world of God is a book for us to read that teaches us things about God and the way that he's made things. He's made them on purpose. I once lived with a, a friend of mine, uh, Andy Shev, his name was. He was best man at my wedding. And he once declared over dinner, if they invented a pill that I could have all my meals in just one pill, and I just took one pill every day, I would eat that and I would be happy. And that I would prefer it if that's how we can got our energy from things. And then I met my wife. And my wife, unbeknownst to me, has an amazing memory for food. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I know that now, because she forgets, she doesn't forget any food that she's ever eaten. She could still tell you what we ate uh, a month ago or a year ago at a particular restaurant. And actually it comes in from her family because her, her dad this week was visiting and Amy said she'd cook him dinner before he came. And so he phoned her two days before and said, what are you cooking for us? Just let me know because I want to get excited about it. I want to start thinking about what I'm going to eat. My wife loves food, um, which is just as well because when I first declared my love for my wife, I did it around food. Uh, I, again, I didn't know. I didn't, I, you know when you... When you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and you, you, there comes a moment where you think to yourself, I'm going to tell them that I love them. How am I going to do that? That was, that was, the, that was the situation I faced as a 21-year-old guy who just met this woman that I'd come, gotten to know. I thought, I'm going to tell her I love her. How am I going to do that? And I, I took some, we were cooking a curry in her student flat and I took the curry, I took the naan bread out of the oven and I said to her, I said, I love naan bread. <laughs> and I said, I said, do you know what else I love? She said, no. I said, you. That was it. And she said, I love you too. I know. Very romantic. I didn't, I didn't realize how good a way that was of communicating my love for her because she loves food. And if I want to tell her that I love her, I just need to use food. So the question is, is God more like Andy Shev or is he more like my wife? Well, when it comes to food... I would suggest that God is a lot more like my wife than he is like my best man for my wedding. Another question is, what comes to your mind when you think about heaven? Often, when people think about dying and going to heaven, if there is a place, they picture clouds and harps and babies, angels and wings. If you were to ask Jesus, what's heaven like? Or if you were to ask the Bible writers, what's heaven like? 
You know what they'd say? A banquet. It's a feast. It's dinner. There's wine overflowing and constant food on a table. And when I, when I say the word banquet, many of you, if you're British at least, you probably instantly picture a medieval court hall with a big fat king and a roast turkey or something on the table. And it's all very greasy and hot and sweaty. It's not particularly desirable. But Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. So again, when Jesus pictures banquet, think Mediterranean long summer evenings, sitting on a veranda with friends, relaxing in the late evening sun. That's what heaven is like, Jesus says. Or that's what the new creation is going to be like. That's the best way he could describe it for us. And day after day, year after year, God creates things that are very, very tasty. Listen to what one author says. One author says this, the bloom of the yeast lies upon the grape skins year after year because he likes it. C2H12O6 equals 2C2H5OH minus 2CO2. It's a dependable process because every September God says, that was nice, do it again. And he does. He does it again and again and again. God seems to have a childlike delight in creation and in the created order that he set in place. Now, there are many unbiblical images that people have of God. And I would suggest when it comes to food and drink, we have an unbiblical image of a God who wants to spoil our fun and make us as unhappy as possible. And yet in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, in the books of the law, in chapter 14, verse 26, God commands his people to have feasts and to eat and drink as much as you want in his presence as an act of worship. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, whether eating or drinking. God insists that we eat and drink and enjoy the good gifts of his creation. Now, you might be struggling with some of that, but it, let me reassure you, this is true because Jesus, when he was on the earth, what was the accusation that his enemies leveled at him? They said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He dines with sinners. How much food or drink does a man need to drink in order for it to be common knowledge he's a glutton or a drunkard? Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't a glutton or a drunkard. I'm not here suggesting we should all be gluttons and drunkards. But the fact that they could say that about him without anyone saying, no, he's not, is an indication that Jesus was known for eating and drinking and being with people. In fact, listen to this. In Luke's gospel alone, we go through the book of Luke. In chapter 5, Jesus eats with outcasts in Levi's home. In Luke chapter 7, he's anointed at Simon's house during a meal. At Luke chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. At Luke 10, he eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the religious leaders while sitting around a meal. Luke 14, we read together about a banquet. Luke 19, Deborah read for us last week, Jesus invites himself for dinner at Zacchaeus' house. Luke chapter 22, Jesus has a last supper with his friends where he teaches them some important things. Luke chapter 20. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. He walks with some friends and has a meal. And then after having a meal with them, he appears to other disciples and eats some fish in Jerusalem. Jesus eats and eats and eats. In fact, so much so that one author says this, Jesus' mission strategy, evangelism, how are we going to tell people about Jesus? How are we going to love the world around us? Jesus' mission strategy was this, a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a jug of wine. And Christians are meant to be followers 
imitators of Christ. So how are you doing on this one? How's your eating and your drinking life? The purpose of a sermon isn't just to go, oh, that was nice, lovely sermon, vicar, off we go. The purpose is to try to get under your skin and change some of the ways you behave to help us become more faithful in the way that we follow Jesus, or if we don't know Jesus, learn about Jesus, commit to Jesus. And in this one, I don't suspect there'll be too much resistance. We need to learn, however, to eat and drink to the glory of God. What does the way you approach food say about you? If your table could talk, what would it say? What does your attitude towards food communicate to people? What does it communicate about what you believe, about friendship, about the Christian life, about salvation, about family, about community? Churches are known for being places that often serve the poor, serve homeless lunches. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. It's good. But Jesus didn't serve the poor. Jesus sat and ate with the poor. Jesus identified with the poor. And in the way that he behaved, he showed approval of them. Tim Chester says this. He says, your table expresses your vision of life. So what vision of life does your table communicate? Our meals, the way that we eat, the way that we use food, can be a representation of our hearts. In Luke, we read Luke chapter 14. It starts like this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler. One Sabbath, one Saturday. Every week they would gather, they would have dinners, there was a weekly practice in their culture of dining, of praying, of having community together. Two weeks ago we started looking at hospitality with a a message about simplifying and slowing down our lives. Part of that is observing, observing a regular day where we rest before God and eat perhaps and drink and enjoy one another's company. We've started doing this as a family for the last few months now. Um, after, on Friday after school, the kids come home. Sometimes I've, I've baked some bread, so they walk in and I smell of the, the bread from the oven. And we gather them around the table. Um, we might tell them that Jesus is the bread of life and have some warm bread and pass it around the table. We might read a psalm. Sometimes we light a candle and say, Jesus is the light of the world. And we, again, then we talk about the needs that we might have, how our week's gone. We pray together. And we play some family games, have a good time have dinner, just relax as long as we can. Well, normally we try to get our youngest to bed and then we have fun because he is a handful. But when we have dinner, what we're increasingly doing as well, I got this from a book, is that we, um, we spin a bottle on the table. Steady on. We spin a bottle on a table and whoever the bottle points to, that person gets to ask a question of everybody else around the table. And uh, our middle son, Zach, he's seven. And uh, you can obviously tell what's going through his mind because every day he wants the bottle to land on him. And every time the bottle lands on him, his question is always, would you rather kiss a girl or hold hands with a girl? <laughs> or he says, would you rather kiss a girl or be friends with a girl? And the next day, would you rather kiss a girl or be friends with a boy? I'm like, I wonder what's on your mind. In fact, Rob was around before, before Christmas, actually, and it landed, and Rob has to answer the question. Would you rather kiss a girl or be friends with a girl? <laughs> it's just it's amusing. Something's going through his mind. But there's a practice of just sitting together. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if every week you could have a Christmas day without any of the hassle of the build-up for Christmas? 
That sounds fun, doesn't it? You can. Jesus does one Sabbath as he's gathered with people. That was the purpose of the Sabbath, to bring the community together to pray. Sundays, getting people back for lunch after church, praying, building community, getting to know people. It's a vital and valid part of what it means to be a church. So in verse 1 we see it's one Sabbath. He's, he sat at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees and they're watching his behavior. So he's at dinner with people, but the dinner isn't really a display of community. It's actually a performance of el- or a, a display of social hierarchies. It's a demonstration of elitism. The religious leaders are there. They've invited Jesus. And there's a man there who's ill, who needs healing. And they're watching Jesus. How are you going to treat this, this injured man? It was a, a thing in the society where they thought that to help the poor, uh, particularly around the Sabbath, you should keep them away to purify the dinner table, to make sure it was a, a meal, a Sabbath time that God approved of. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, a day of rest, went about God's work in healing and caring for people. So let's look at this. Some different ways that we can use food. We can use food in, a, in an elitist way. Of we have our dinner parties and we invite the, our friends, the respectable peoples in society, the people that we get on with, people who are, who are just like us. We invite them around, we light our candles, we put on a show, we do the best entertainment we can. And then afterwards we score one another in a taxi as we go home. Um, and the winner gets a thousand pounds. That's one way that we've, we've turned dining together into an elitist activity. Certainly for, for middle class families, they've always used it to try to emulate the upper classes, be like the royal family, extend hospitality to guests outside of our home. So we can use our hospitality as a, as a demonstration of inclusion of, or, or of social standing. Another way we use our dinner tables is we, we use it to strike business deals, don't we? So we, you know, we, we use it to kind of help us get some leverage with someone, provide it for somebody to talk around so that we can, oh, you can trust me because I eat dinner like you do and sign on here and your life will be fine. And so we, we broker business deals around the business table. And well, how else do we use food? We use food a lot of the time, increasingly, as fuel. We just, we eat on the go. We snack. In fact, increasingly in our society, that's how we use food. We, we snack, we, we just kind of grab it and go. We don't really sit down for long. And as we do that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to overcome our human limitations. We're trying to be like God. I don't need to sit down and eat. I'm just going to eat and go. We eat processed food, junk that's not very good for us. But, it, you know, just a bit of energy and off we go. We take a pill to perhaps serve as food. Another, way, another type of way that we use food is we, we comfort eat. <laughs> we get donuts, which apparently are the most you know, alluring thing, the most easy to eat thing because it's perfectly shaped to want to be eaten by you and me. But we eat, we eat because it makes us comfortable. We eat when we're bored. We eat when we're sad. We eat when we're lonely. We eat when we sit down on the sofa in front of the telly at night and think, I need to have a donut in my hand because I'm watching a TV show. They go, the two go together. We go and get something out of the fridge and we come back and think the fridge is empty. And we sit down and then a few minutes later, if you're like anything like me, I stand up again and think, there must be something I can eat because I'm doing something very strenuous. I'm watching TV. I need some food. We comfort eat. We do something to, rather than going to God for comfort, we turn to food for comfort. Or we, we use food as a, as a form of salvation, don't we? 
we use it as a form of salvation or as a statement of our identity. We eat like superfoods, healthy foods, snack foods, you know, supercharged nuts blended up and we whiz things up and we're like, yeah, let's take it in a hip flask and off we go for the day and we, we sip and we think, I don't really need to stop. It's my identity. I'm a health freak. Or we control the amount that we eat as a way of getting a perfect body or as a way of making ourselves good. Like, like Eve in the garden, we think, I'll be like God if I control my eating. Tim Chester again says that our approach to food sometimes has turned into a form of salvation for us, a form of religion for us. He says this, there are slimming programs out there that can offer a points-based religion. Salvation comes through being accepted by others and a beautiful body is the means by which we save ourselves. Food is rated so your progress towards salvation can be scored. Your life is assessed when you stand on the scales. Weight loss equals righteousness. Weight gain equals condemnation. You are weighed in the scales and found wanting. I'm not saying you shouldn't do weight loss programs, of course, but sometimes if we're not careful, it reflects an attitude towards food that isn't right. We look to it to bring us salvation. And so how are we to treat food? What do we see in this passage? Well, we're to treat food neither as those who live to eat, the food is, is essential for our salvation, nor as those who eat just to live, treating food as a means of fuel. But instead, we're to treat food as a good gift given to us by God as a means for us to be able to express the gospel message, the message of welcome home and inclusion that God has given us in Jesus. So Jesus tells a parable in verse 15 to 24 of a rich man who has a feast and invites as many people in who are willing to come. And at the end of the parable, in verse 24, Jesus reveals to us that the parable, the feast, is a picture of what is actually he's inviting us to. He says in verse 24, I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus is picturing a time in history where God will gather all people together at the the marriage feast of the church and Jesus. And everyone's invited. So food is a means for Jesus of, of preaching that message of approval and of acceptance and of welcome home. That there is a feast coming, Jesus says, that we're all invited to. And who's invited? The lame, the poor, the blind, the crippled. Us, those who are spiritually poor, spiritually lame, spiritually crippled, spiritually unable to help ourselves, are invited to the supper, the feast of the Lamb. And you see, just as Jesus, when he went into the temple, he overthrew the temple and changed and challenged the way that people were worshipping God, I I half expect that Jesus would come into many of our lives, look at the way that we use food, and would again just do this. It's not what food is for. Food, Jesus says, he says is this. It's about wine, it's about bread, it's about feasting. Because the wine that Jesus gives us at the Last Supper when he sits down with his friends, he says this, the wine is a picture of the feast that's coming. Wine is a symbol of joy and of festivities and of fun and of celebration. You don't bring 
donut. Well, you can bring donuts. He, <laughs> he says to people, that's why I want you to think about food. It's a gift from God for you as a way of you knowing that your father is welcoming you to his table. And I look at, I look at the way that we practice our communion service sometimes. We break bread a lot together. And I'm not sure we do it right because Jesus, would ha- Jesus says use wine. Because wine's a picture of feasting. It's a picture of celebration, of joy, of delight. And that's what Jesus wants us and how it wants us to consider how we use our food. Jesus sits down with the outcasts and the immoral in his society. So much, uh, and sitting down with someone is a statement of acceptance and of approval. You're identifying with them, saying, you, you're, you're my person. You, you and me, we sit face to face. We go toe to toe. We sit side by side. I'm not above you. You're not below me. You're a brother. You're a sister. And that's how Jesus uses food. And he's throwing a banquet. He's putting on a banquet in our in his honor and that we're invited to attend. So what are we going to do about our eating practices? How are we going to respond to Jesus' parable, Jesus' message? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you're someone who, who wouldn't say you follow Jesus, you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're invited in to know him. You're invited to feast with him. When Jesus sat with his friends at the Last Supper and said, this is my blood poured out for you, this is my body broken for you, he's offering you an actual meal to say, this is for you. Salvation, rescue, celebration, joy, forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of shame for you. If you're not a Christian, Jesus invites you to follow him and to sit with him. See, Christianity is the most inclusive of all the faiths because God essentially says, you have what you want. If you want to come to the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, you can come. Everyone is invited. The highways and the hedgeways, no matter who you are. If you are a believer already, the question is, how can the way you use food begin to change? How can you use it to best communicate this message? The message of welcome home. The message of come, God offers forgiveness and acceptance to you. How can you best receive food as a gift from God rather than use food as a means of controlling others or as a means of working out your standing in society or as a means of just consuming some energy to go? Receive your food as a gift. The question today is what will the message of your table be, the table of your life? How can you use food to best communicate that gospel message of welcome home? Let's pray.